so we have in John's Gospel, John outlining for us in John chapter 1, make no mistake, this person who you are seeing in the flesh, Jesus Christ, is the creator God. He's made his dwelling among us. He's pitched our tent so that we can see him and so that we can know him. Uh, John the Baptist has testified uh, to who Jesus Christ is. And already in chapter 2, we've seen Jesus perform his first miracle at the wedding at Cana. And of course, clearing the temple, declaring himself to be the very place where God and man meet. And then we have this uh, verse 23 in chapter 2, which really I feel belongs uh, very closely to chapter 3. That's where we're going to begin tonight. Now, while he, Jesus, was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many people saw the miraculous signs he was doing and believed in his name. But Jesus would not entrust himself to them, for he knew all men. He did not need man's testimony about man, for he knew what was in a man. The clue to understanding that is that Jesus is seeing in them spurious faith based on the signs, not based truly on who he is as a son of God. Now notice this, okay? It finishes there saying, he did not need man's testimony about, uh, about man, for he knew what was in a man. What's the first thing you read in chapter 3? Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know you are a teacher who has come from God. For no one could perform the miraculous signs you are doing if God were not with him. In reply, Jesus declared, I tell you the truth. No one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. How can a man be born when he is old? Nicodemus asked. Surely he cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb to be born. Well, Jesus answered, I tell you the truth. No one can enter the kingdom of God unless he is born of water and the spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the spirit gives birth to spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. How can this be? Nicodemus asked. You're Israel's teacher, said Jesus, and you do not understand these things? I tell you the truth. We speak of what we know, and we testify to what we have seen, but, you, but still you people do not accept our testimony. I have spoken to you of earthly things, and you do not believe me. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, so the Son of Man must be lifted up. That everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. 
But whoever does not believe stands condemned already because he has not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but men love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. But everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that it may be seen plainly that what he has done has been done through God. Amen. This is God's great worth. Well, am I in trouble? It's not working. Never mind. Great. One particular Sunday. How's that? Okay. On one particular Sunday in 1851. <laughs> Sounds better saying it like that, doesn't it? There was a most unusual... Now, I'll go back into my normal voice. There was a most unusual conversion in a church in England, in a place called Truro. And it was unusual because the person converted, not because that person seemed like an unlikely convert, but it was unusual because the person was thought to have been converted already. The man in question was known as William Haslam. That is, the Reverend William Haslam. He was a man who was preaching in a pulpit, opening the Bible, talking about the things of God, about the things of Jesus Christ, and yet he was not a believer. He was a man who was basically bounced on the lap of Christian parents, hearing the name of Jesus sung to him in lullabies since he was little, gone to Sunday school, gone to a Bible college, filled his mind with Bible knowledge, being called to a church and explained to people the things of the Bible, yet had never actually came to be, come to be born again. He had no genuine personal faith. That is, until this one Sunday, when he got up into his pulpit and preached on the text, What think ye of Christ? Apparently, according to the witnesses there, they thought it was a remarkable event. Halfway through the sermon, one of the members in the church stood up and said, The preacher's been converted. So they knew, indeed, that he wasn't quite a Christian before then. His own testimony was, I saw myself in this moment a Pharisee who talked about Jesus Christ but did not know him or the life he offered. I was convicted by my shame and at that moment born again by his spirit. Why do I start with that? Well, because I think that Nicodemus is a little bit like him and maybe a little bit like some of us. Nicodemus is introduced to us in verse 1 as a Pharisee, a man of the Pharisees. In other words, that tells us that he loves, God, he loves God's word. I mean, this man ties little 
memory verses round his garments and wraps them round his wrists. He spends his life explaining God's word to people as a Bible man. And yet he doesn't see the truth. He's also described in here as a member of the Jewish ruling council in verse 1. In other words, he's a member of this 70-strong council who led the people of Israel and who protected the temple. So he was a dignitary. He was esteemed in the land. He would have been a good man. But yet, so essentially what we have presented before us is this picture of an able theologian. You know, he is like the Reverend Dr. Nicodemus MP, you could say. He comes even speaking with confidence, as you see in verse 2, as to what he knows. We know. We know a a thing or two, he is saying. He's addressing Jesus as rabbi as well, which means teacher. But essentially, he's addressing him as one like himself. Interestingly, not quite like the Son of God that we see described for us in chapter 1. But that's an aside. But he's coming and he's basing his critique on this man Jesus on the signs that he has been performing, that very thing which has been causing spurious faith in many already in Israel at this time, not saving faith. And Jesus responds with a statement so strong that it must have absolutely taken the spiritual legs away from Nicodemus. To the one who saw himself a surefire inheritor of the eternal life that God offered, an inheritor and a citizen of the kingdom of God itself, Jesus says, I tell you the truth, no one can see the kingdom of God unless he's born again. Nicodemus wouldn't have been able to have believed his ears, I'm sure of it. A Bible man that doesn't know the truth, a good man who doesn't qualify for the kingdom of God, I start with all of that to ask you the question now, do you see how unnerving this passage can be for some of us? See what we're running into here? This this text, maybe more than others, challenges how we perceive ourselves in regard to our relationship to God. And it highlights for us actually that our personal perception is not always the best indicator of reality. I mean, if someone as good and as sophisticated and as respected as Nicodemus or someone as churchified, I've just made up a word, uh, as, as this chap Haslam that I mentioned in the illustration at the start, can fall prey to such misguided belief, well, surely it can happen to us. I mean, this text has some incredible things, incomparable things to say to us, uh, maybe to, to believers certainly, but to unbelievers who've had no Christian upbringing at all. But I dare say that this text has some very important things to say to those of us who have been Christians and come into church for years, to those who've happily discussed Bible passages and fellowship groups and sung songs about Jesus without actually seeing him or knowing him or worshiping him as the Son of God. And I have no desire to create doubt in what we're thinking through tonight. Rather, to bring about assurance of faith. Here's what I want us to do. Uh, I I want to tell you just what we're going to work through in one quick sentence. Essentially what we're going to see in John chapter 3 in one sentence. Here it comes on screen. What we have here is an affirmation that there is new life in him 
who loves us. Dead simple. New life in him who loves us. Okay? And we're going to deal with this in three particular ways. Number one, the divine imperative. Number two, the divine initiative. Number three, the divine incentive. So let's look at number one, first of all. The divine imperative. Look with me again, verse 7. See it for yourself. Where Jesus says, You should not be surprised at my saying, You must be born again. You must be born again. Well, this is interesting, isn't it? I mean, even just looking at those words. When Jesus says the word you, this means this is personal, okay? It's personal for all of us. When he says must, he is really speaking with some authority. People tend not to like that nowadays in our postmodern world. But Jesus comes authoritatively and saying, saying this new birth, this is necessary. And he said, because he said to Nicodemus in verse 7, you must be born again. He didn't say, I suggest you be born again, or your life would improve if you added this. No, he said, you must be born again. In other words, the greatest thing that you need, Nicodemus, despite all the things that you know, despite the kind of life that you're currently living, is a new start, a new beginning. You need a new heart. You need a new spirit in you. You need just completely transformed. And that's quite a thing to say. That's quite a thing to hear from someone, I, I, I would suggest. Where does Jesus get the authority for this? I mean, you could almost hear Nicodemus ticking over in his head. Who do you, who do you think you are? I'm a Bible man. I'm a good man. I'm a member of the Jewish ruling council. And I think Nicodemus, when he comes, I don't believe... As in the reading of this text that Nicodemus is necessarily coming as a seeker, I believe he's actually coming along saying, now, now, Jesus, teacher to teacher, let me just share a thing or two with you. But Jesus speaks with authority and just takes the legs away from under Nicodemus saying, even in, later on in the text, saying, you are Israel's teacher and you do not see these things? What authority does Jesus have? Well, we see it in the text, in verses 12 and 13 in particular. I have spoken to you of earthly things and you do not believe. How will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? No one has gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. Well, Jesus essentially is saying here, this is how I know these things and this is how I can say these things with this kind of authority. I have come from God. No one has ever gone up to God to check this out and come back. The only one who is able to speak in this way with such authority and with such clarity is one who has been sent by God, who has been with God in the beginning, sent by God, and that is what I am. That's what Jesus is saying. And he's saying to Nicodemus, I mean, I could tell you about some heavenly things that would blow your mind, essentially. But you can't even cope with, the, with these earthly things. Now, what does that tell us? When Jesus is saying, you must be born again, do we think, oh, poor Nicodemus. This phrase, you must be born again, is not in the Old Testament. So, I mean, how can he be expected to understand what Jesus is meaning here? Well, he should have, although the text is not explicitly laid out in that sense by saying you must be born again. There are myriads of texts which talk about the necessity 
of life transformation and heart transformation and new beginnings of setting aside your old way of life, of turning to God and living a new life in him and through him and for him. This is what's behind Jesus' words, even in verse 5. Look with me again where he says, No one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born of water and the Spirit. And then, of course, later on in verse 8, he adds this metaphor of wind. Now, when Jesus used those three words, water, spirit, wind, if Nicodemus was thinking, if he was a learned man and knew the Old Testament text, his mind should have gone zoop to Ezekiel 36 37. Ezekiel 36 and 37. What do we see there? Verse 25 of Ezekiel 36. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. So purification from God. I will cleanse you from all impurities. Then the next verse, 26, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. In other words, the one who will enter the kingdom are those who have a newness of life that involves a cleansing of the old and a creation of newness. And that's immediately before Ezekiel 37, where we have this vision of the the valley of deadness, of dry bones. Verse 9 says, prophesy to the breath. This is the sovereign Lord come from the four winds, O breath. Breath and wind in the Old Testament text are exactly the same word. Water, spirit, wind. Go to Ezekiel 36, 37. See God's purposes in giving you a new start in life. A new heart. Not a heart of stone that's cold towards God and uncaring about the things that he commands, but a heart of flesh that is is pumping for him and alive to him. That's what he's calling us to. How is that possible? Through the wind of the Holy Spirit breathing on us enlivening us, making us alive. Those dead bones, they had had sinews and all those kind of other physiological things happening to them in that chapter. They they stand there, and they're they're the living dead, in other words. They're, They're there. They have skin and flesh and bones on them. And what do we read? The Lord says to Ezekiel that there is no breath in them and calls for this wind, this new creation, wind to come into them. New life. That's what Jesus is talking about when he says, you must be born again. You need new creation, new heart, new life in you. doesn't matter how much of the Bible you know. If your heart has not been transformed by God to love him, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. You will not know him in eternity. You'll be separated from him. So the question immediately is, in light of this necessity of new birth, have you been born again? Have you had your heart transformed? Have you put your faith and trust in Jesus? I pray that you would, by the end of this text, the end of this sermon, the first thing we see, the divine imperative. You must be born again. New birth is a must for eternal life. But let me show you the second thing we see in this passage. That being born again is a passive thing. It's something done for us. Did you notice how even in Ezekiel's passages, 
It's, it's God who does the cleansing. It's God who essentially does the heart transplant for our old heart. And it's God who takes dead bones and gives them life. All of this highlights the glorious truth that we see in John 3 of the divine initiative of God. That's point two, the divine initiative. Flesh cannot produce the spiritual life, the new creation that we need. If it could be done on our own efforts, surely someone like Nicodemus would have been the ideal candidate to have been an inheritor of it then. But that's not true. People cannot produce the new birth by themselves. You can't newly create yourself despite what TV programs tell you. Verse 6 tells us flesh gives birth to flesh. Spirit gives birth to spirit. What does that mean? Well, it means that like generates like. Monkeys don't produce chickens, in other words. Uh, Elephants don't produce apples. Uh, In the same way, kind of, that flesh does not and cannot produce new hearts. Nicodemus, as I say, is testimony of this. And this is nothing short of unsettling for him and indeed for some of us. This Jesus teaching here about this new birth confronts us with our hopeless spiritual and moral and legal condition as people without God's love, without God's spirit, and without his divine initiative in transforming us. Before we are born again, his heavenly view of us is this. Three things. We are spiritually dead, like the bones. We are morally selfish and rebellious. And we are, thirdly, legally guilty before God and deserving of his punishment and justice. So what Jesus is saying, essentially, in this is that our present condition is a pretty hopeless one. You see, we're not neutral when spiritual darkness that's spoken about in this passage envelops us. We embrace it, actually. We don't just reject God. We're actually, Romans tell, the book of Romans tells us that we are hostile towards God. We embrace darkness. Love and hate are, of course, active in a heart that has not been born again. But the problem is they're moving in the wrong direction, hating what should be loved, that is God, and loving what should be hated, that is sin. It's an interesting perspective on human life, isn't it? It's not what we're called to think about in our, in our culture. We're called to redeem our self-esteem. But the Word of God doesn't flatter us at all. Neither does it deceive us, really. It's plain. The Bible tells us there is none righteous. No, not one. No one understands. None that seeks after God. Each one has turned to his own way, together becoming worthless. There is no one who, who does good. No, not one. That's Romans 3, 10 to 12. I mean, these are God's words. Jeremiah from the Old Testament, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Ephesians 2, picking up on Ezekiel 37, we are dead in our trespasses and sins. We are humanly unable to save ourselves. And I believe his decision then To make us alive will not be a response to what we as spiritual corpses do. 
but what we do will be a response to his enlivening of our hearts and his breathing life into our spirits. It's interesting, that. I mean, it means that all the praying parents, praying friends, praying preachers in the world cannot, by their own efforts, save a single soul. I have preached Christ with my whole heart, but I know I have never produced a saving effect in anyone that I have ever preached to. But God blesses those praying parents, and God blesses those praying friends, praying preachers, weaves into his sovereign will the inclusion of their efforts but it's a work that is done by the Holy Spirit who will have all praise for it, for he alone works this wonderful change. We need this divine activity of the Spirit in light of our human ability. Isn't this what we, what's plain to see even in verse 21 at the end of, the chap, uh, the end of uh, that section there? Look with me. Whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that it may be plainly seen that what he has done has been done through God. In other words, it's his activity. How? By the divine work of the Holy Spirit. And these are the references that we pick up on to the references to wind. In verse 8, the wind blows wherever, wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. Now, the wind is neither controlled nor fully understood by human beings. Sure, we have wonderful meteorologists who are brilliantly trained. But even they can get it wrong. You know, we know that. But you can't see where the wind is going. There is a mystery to it. And there is certainly no control over it by us. Nevertheless, we see the wind's effects, don't we? We see God at work in people's lives. We see the effects of the wind blowing, if we return to that illustration. I used to play golf in St. Andrews uh, when I lived there, and, and the worst thing was driving up the fifth with the wind howling against you. I'm not kidding. You would tee off, and the ball would just be suspended in the air. Or on the 12th, which was way worse. I mean, you would hit the ball and it would just slice away that way. Someone's laughing because they think that's more like your game than your wind. I mean, now I didn't see the wind on any of those occasions, but I saw its effects. I mean, it wrecked my scorecard. But the point is this. This is the degree of mystery that is involved in this thing called the new birth. It is... Let me put it this way. It is inexplicable to the glory of God. Okay? Inexplicable to the glory of God. Yet of this we can be utterly certain. God is at work. God is the great doer in this miracle of new creation in the hearts of people who are far from him, in the hearts of people who are hostile towards him. He calls them. He draws them. He sets his affection on them, and he transforms them his business. It's his church's business. It's incredible. He has not been silent about this. 
It's incredible. It's passive and it's essential. It's unnerving, isn't it? Again, our eternal destiny hangs on something only God can do for us. But what has God indeed done for us is the, the question that is begged of us. Look at verse 14 with me. It's key, absolutely key. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, so the Son of Man, one of Jesus' favorite designations for himself, must be lifted up. He's, re he's referring to that which is to come. There is a cross on the horizon, friends. We're going to get there. But for Jesus, there is a cross in the horizon. He knows it fine and well. He himself is going to be lifted up on a cross to die for the sins of the world. The Son of Man must be lifted up. Why? That everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. So this inheriting of eternal life is directly related to this being lifted up of Jesus Christ. But what's he talking about? Moses and a snake. Turn with me to page 158 in the Pew Bibles. But to Numbers 21 if you're using your own. Just a short passage from verse 4. It says they traveled, that is the Israelites, the people of God, traveled from Mount Hor along the route to the Red Sea to go around Edom. But the people grew impatient on the way. What did they do? They spoke against God, that's not good, and against Moses and said, why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the desert? They were dying in Egypt. There is no bread. There is no water. And we detest this miserable food. The Lord was providing for them bread from heaven, nonetheless. Then the Lord sent venomous snakes among them. They bit the people and many Israelites died. The wages of sin is death, friends. Okay? It's God's perfect justice. The people then came to Moses and said, Ah, they realize it, don't they? What do they say? We sinned. When we spoke against the Lord and against you, pray that the Lord will take the snakes away from us. So Moses prayed for the people. The Lord said to Moses, Make a snake and put it up on a pole. Anyone who is bitten can look at it and live. So Moses made a bronze snake, put it up on a pole. And when anyone was bitten by a snake and looked at the bronze snake... He lived. He lived. Now look at this. The people sinned in that occasion, didn't they? Ungrateful for God's provision, rebelling against his rule. They came under the judgment of God there. God is the one who provides a means of rescue. If a person heading for death looked with faith to this bronze serpent on a pole, believing that God would save them, they lived. So when Jesus says in verse 14 of John chapter 3, just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes in him may eternal life. He is saying that just in the same way that people were saved from God's wrath by looking to this bronze serpent, so people too can be saved from God's just 
punishment of their sin by looking to the lifted up and crucified Jesus Christ. In faith, believing him to be the Son of God, convicted of the fact that they have sinned and rebelled against him, being ungrateful for his loving provision. People can look and live. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. Because you have in this passage the unique purpose of the Son, Jesus Christ, here. You have the dynamic work of the Holy Spirit which just shouts to you, look, look, he's filling all the test, all the testimonies that point to Jesus in John's gospel, you can be sure behind them is the Holy Spirit saying, tell them to look, look, tell them to look, look to Jesus crucified on the cross for their sins to avert God's wrath that was justly due for them and grant them life. Tell them about life. That's the divine activity of the Holy Spirit despite us. Despite our hostility towards God, despite the deep, dark sinfulness of our hearts, despite the fact we have hearts of stones that are cold towards God, he makes a way for us to be saved. Do you think you deserve that? I didn't deserve that. I didn't deserve that on the basis of the way I lived my life for 19 years. In drug abuse, in fighting, in all sorts of ways. I didn't deserve any of this. None of us do. This is why when we come into the light in verse 21, it is seen plainly that what has happened in our lives has been done through who? God. What has God done for us? Why did God do this? Look, point three, verse 16, the divine incentive. God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. Why? That whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. God does not look upon our world, you know, and find it lovable. This is how the human mind tends to think, you know. We think, I am loved, therefore I must be lovable. You can, you can see this in our, the way we practice it coming up to Valentine's Day. You can imagine a wife and a husband so in love. Here's a few ideas for you if you want to write a wee poem. A husband may say, oh, my dear wife, your eyes are like stars. Your hair is like a tumbling waterfall reflecting rays of sunlight. Your touch is silk to me. I love you. The guys are taking notes. You see the point, though? We communicate these things. We love because we see someone as, as lovable. We set our affection on them because we see them as lovable. With God, however, his love is so magnificent because he loves us even when we are unlovely. I mean, he might, in all reality, address us like this in his own poem. You look like... Such a mess. Your hair is so greasy. You have not washed in a decade. Your nose is running all over your face and your breath smells like a slaughterhouse. 
I love you. What? You know? I mean, that's the extent of it. I love you. I knew you were going to be a mess. I know you will still be a mess until you see me face to face. But such is my love that I am pouring on you. Do not run away from it. Do not neglect it. Receive it. It's a free gift. It is a free gift. Receive it. When John tells us God so loved the world that he gave his only son, it's far from an endorsement of who we are. Rather, as Don Carson says, it is a testimony to the character of God. God's love is to be admired, not because the world is so lovely, but because the world is so bad. His love is immense. It is, there is nothing that compares to it. But we ask the question, why would he take this divine initiative? to call us to look to Jesus Christ who is lifted up on the cross. Why go to that effort when we are so unlovely? Because he is love. And it is to his glory that he sets his affection on us and transforms us in the most unlikely way, in ways that we do not deserve. It is incredible. Many people have a strange reaction to that. Many people still insist, they believe, our God does not see all the things that we are and all the things that I've done, but that's not true. Remember chapter 2, verse 25, God knows what's in a man. He loves us despite us. He knows us. He knows we're going to be messy. He knows we couldn't turn to him of our own accord. That's what the cross is all about. It's what Jesus being lifted up on the cross is all about. Don't doubt. There are people here, I'm sure, who are doubting whether or not God loves them. Don't don't doubt that at all. Don't doubt the efficacy of the shed blood of Jesus Christ to cover your sin. Don't think you need to try and earn your way into his favor. That's repulsive really. His love is perfect and perfectly set on you. We celebrate this fact, not that we are clean, but that while we weren't clean, God loved us and sent his son into the world to die a horrible death on a cross, to take away our sins, and to be raised again to life three days later, to come out of that tomb, declaring to each and every one of us, as I live, you also shall. What's the word? Live. Live. The answer to our death is life in Jesus Christ. That's what John's writing about in the whole gospel. These things are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing in him you may have life in his name. Life. It's held out for you. It's bought for you with his blood. The incentive behind it all is love. Are you crazy To reject it. Receive it as he draws you and calls you. It's astonishing that God, as it says in verse 17, did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, which he could rightly have done, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is is not condemned. Well, look at verse 19 with me as we draw this to a close. 
This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but men love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. God knows what's in a man. He knows what's in you. There's no need to fear the shame of coming forward. And the answer and the reason for that is because Jesus Christ has already paid the price for that shame and that guilt and that sin. And what is for us to do is to repent of our sin. That means to turn away from our life of sin and turn to God in faith, believing that Jesus has paid the price for our sin, that he has set his affection on us, and our hearts are transformed. Brothers and sisters of Charlotte Chapel, we have a gospel to proclaim. How can we keep our mouths shut? Is this, is this message of John 3 in your heart? Because if it is, your heart should be overflowing. And if this message is in your heart, it should be in your mouth. And if this message is in your mouth, it should be in your speech, in your conversation, in the things that you're talking to people about. How can we keep silent when God has not been silent in communicating his love to us? God uses us, fills us, his people, with his spirit to declare his glorious salvation and to join with the witnesses of John. To join, to hear that call of the Holy Spirit, to say to people in this city and throughout our world who have no hope, who are humanly unable to deal with their own sin problem, say, look, look and left the eternal life is held out for them. I pray that we would. And I pray that if anyone is here tonight who's not a Christian, maybe you've been here just for the first time, maybe you've been on a road for about six months or so thinking through this thing called Christianity, this, this love is incomparable. The, the extent to which God has demonstrated this love is is not matched and it's extended to you that you might believe and that you tonight may be transformed and given new life in him that's what we're talking about as we summarize the divine imperative new life divine initiative in and through him divine incentive who loves us new life in him who loves us is the message of John 3. Do you accept it? Do you believe it? I'd love to talk to you about this if you had any questions. But for now, let's pray and praise him for his great grace. Father, we praise you and give you glory that in this text we see your divine purposes revealed to us that you in love sent your son Jesus to do that unique work of dying on the cross to take away our sin and pay the penalty that was due to us for our sin thank you that you have made him who had no sin to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God that we might be the recipients of this love 
and the recipient of this heart transplant that you do in us. And we pray indeed as we look now to the cross in our hearts, in our minds, thinking at the cost of this great sacrifice. And as we consider our own hearts and the sinfulness that we see so readily when we take time to look, that you would forgive us for our sin and grant us here tonight new life in Christ. New life in and through him who loves us. We pray this to the glory of your name and to the praise of your glorious grace. In Jesus' name, amen.